Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. Natalie Jenner is the international best-selling author of The Jane Austen Society. It's a fictional retelling of the start of the society in the 1940s in the village of Chawton, England, where Austen once lived. Natalie was born in England and emigrated to Canada as a young child. She obtained her BA and LLB from the University of Toronto. And in addition to a brief career as a corporate lawyer, worked as a recruiter, career coach and consultant to leading law firms in Canada for over 20 years. Natalie was also the founder of the independent bookstore Archetype Books in Oakville, Ontario, where she lives with her family and two rescue dogs. A USA Today, LA Times, and number one Canadian fiction bestseller Natalie's debut novel, The Jane Austen Society, will be published around the world in 20 different languages. Natalie, thanks for joining me and congrats on your book and your success. Hi, Stephen. Thanks so much for asking me to speak with your audience today and chat with you. And as you can see from my bio, I've worn a lot of hats. <laughs> so the coming to the writing game, I'm actually a debut novelist in my early 50s. So that's part Fantastic. of the, the that, journey. No, that's, yeah. that's great. And actually, that's probably maybe an encouragement to some people um, who might say, oh, you know, I didn't start writing early or I have these ideas, but it's too late for me or something like that. But, but clearly, you're, you know, a novelist done really well gotten great reviews and great response from, from readers. And like you mentioned, you know, you didn't start when you were 19 or 20 like some people do. So, so that's great. Congratulations. Thank you. I actually didn't even start. We're trying to write my first novel until I was 30, but it took 20 years to get to this stage. So it's a very windy path, but um, it ain't over till it's over. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's great. You know, so many people today, whenever we talk about writing books or coming up with ideas and so on, they're kind of like, oh, yeah, I write three books a year, six books a year, something like that. And it's actually encouraging for me to hear someone say, you know, look, it took me years and years to really come up with the right words, the right story, and tell it the right way. And uh, I, uh, I appreciate that, yeah. I think having um, an inspirational moment just doesn't necessarily come, at least not for me, yeah. that often. And I, I do believe that writing regularly and, and writing lots of manuscripts, I mean, I have, I think, Janelson Society is my sixth completed novel, mm. but my first published. I think all of that work is developing a yeah. muscle, and it, it never goes to waste. But I think that moment of inspiration for some of us comes later in life, maybe after we've had certain life experiences or challenges or insights. Yeah, that's, um, uh, you know, a lot of stories that have depth to them do kind of come maybe a little later. I'm not trying to diss any young writers because they're <laughs> fantastic young writers, but I know for me too, like my first novel came, I guess I wrote when I was maybe 35 or something like that. Yeah. So, so I, totally, I, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. Um, I, I would be reticent if I didn't ask this question, first of all, because I know some of our guests are dog lovers and they're going to be interested in your rescue dogs. So there's always a story. So I want to ask, how did you end up caring for the rescue dogs? So we actually um, are the proud parents of 
two rescue dogs. Um, we've had three over time. Um, one of our rescue dogs actually came up to Canada from Kentucky. Uh, was rescued from a puppy mill and truck driver uh, brought oh them up, and it was really interesting. Um, we have a beagle mix, Henry James, and we have an Akita mix, and an Akita dog is, I think, the second oldest dog known to civilization, and they're very interesting. She's the one from Kentucky. Um, just humane shelters and other rescue societies. I just can't go buy one without mm. trying to take one home, which my husband has learned the hard way. We once had like a full bottle of Merlot at a restaurant and we were driving by the Humane Society afterwards and he's like, you know, why don't we just go in? And then we you know, came home uh-huh. with a bottle. <laughs> there you <laughs> so. go. All right. Well, but that's good. I like the idea of caring for, you know, the animals, the dogs so, um, that had been uh, in situations that weren't positive and healthy for them. So, yeah, Absolutely. that's great. That They're the most grateful creatures, the rescue dogs. I think, I think on some level, right, that, that shift in circumstances for them um, it makes them incredibly, I find, uh, loving and grateful. However, we think they may have become codependent because we haven't left our house for a year because oh of my goodness. husband's yeah. high-risk health condition. And we actually went out to fortunately get him, my husband his vaccine on Saturday, which was so exciting, but we had to leave the dogs, and they were very confused. So I think it's going to be an adjustment period for everybody oh, at the end. <laughs> well, I'm glad that he was able to get the vaccine. That's that's good news. So I'm thrilled. Yeah. Yeah. So before um, launching into writing, um, and maybe even as you were mm-hmm. working as a lawyer and in, in the law industry, mm-hmm. um, you worked it, it, as a lawyer, and 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 so for over 20 years. I have a number of friends who are writers who used to be lawyers as well, and I was just wondering, what is it about lawyers and writing? Yeah, are there certain skills that you you know found that carried over well into your your writing? I think it's a little a bit of you know which came first, the chicken or the egg. I, I think a lot of people that go to law school are people that love to read and love mm. language and using language for formulating arguments and persuasion. And I think that often when you're young and you're thinking about what can I do with loving to read and loving mm. to write, and um, it's almost like well, I'm not going to become Elvis Presley or the Beatles, you know, as a musician. And as a young person interested in the arts, it's very hard to look at it as a a career that you should put all your eggs in that basket, to continue the earlier metaphor. So I remember thinking that law for me was my second closest love to writing as a young person. And when I got to law school, I don't know that I necessarily spoke to other lawyers about writing, but I noticed as I became a lawyer that we were all voracious readers. Mm. And I think that law, once you experience the training of it, teaches you a lot of things that are critical to becoming a writer that I think make it easier for you when you do sit down one day, maybe, to write a novel, which is the diligence required of every day this unstoppable truck of, you know, nine hours of readings every day, you know, and you just have to keep doing it. And I I think it teaches you to just sit down and and do something that's that expansive and time-consuming and hard every day for three years of your life. And then I think also it does teach you the sacredness of the text. You do learn when you study as a lawyer that if they put a period instead of a semicolon, you know, it changes the whole meaning of a paragraph of legislation and they all end up at the Supreme Court one day arguing about it. And I wow, think that yeah. there's an appreciation for, yeah, the, the, the sort of um, importance of every single thing you write down. And then I think the third reason that I benefited from my legal education and suspect has helped a lot of people become, law- um, become writers who are lawyers is learning how to 
communicate as effectively but also as efficiently as possible. Mm. Whether you're before a jury in court or you're drafting a contract, it's that sense of using language in a way that keeps the reader um, engaged and motivated and understanding where you're going and has a confidence in what you're saying. And one of the things that my agent has said to me, which I think is really valuable and important, is you know he said to me, you can do a lot of things if the audience is confident that you know where you're going. And I, I like think that, that confidence yeah. is, yeah, it's really important. I think law training actually gives you that as well. That's an interesting observation. Let's just chat about that for a second. And that is this idea that your readers or your audience is confident in you as yeah. a writer, as a storyteller, yeah. and so on. That a lot of times when I'm teaching about writing, really emphasize that we make promises early in our books. Maybe mm. they're implied promises or explicit promises. You know, we introduce a character and we tell you about the character and then readers are like, okay, well, I'm guessing he's significant or else they wouldn't spend so much time telling me about him, right? Yeah. And that as we fulfill those promises, readers have that, you know, built up confidence. Okay, well, I can trust this writer is, I'm in good hands. Yeah. And that then that can carry them you know, through to the, to the end of the book. So, so the, yeah, that's interesting. I've never heard it put quite like that, but I totally, I'm on the same page. I, I love the idea of promises. I've never heard it put that way. One of the things that I had, I remember uh, reading, I'm self-taught. I mean, I think I've taken one correspondence course on creative writing about 24 years ago now. But all the rest of my learning of my craft has come through reading people like Stephen King, you know, um, and uh, Julia Cameron and Anne Lamott, Francine Prose. And one of the things I remember someone saying is that every detail that you put in your book should be either an omen or a cause. Hmm. And that also really stayed with me as well. So when I write, and one of the reasons I love Jane Austen so much is, um, who's the subject in many ways of you know, my, my first book, when I write, I'm trying very hard to make sure that everything I put down is serving you know, a purpose. And it's yeah. either advancing plot or character or atmosphere, and in doing that, I think the reader realizes, like you said, that the promise of every detail will be fulfilled. I like looking at, you know, details as promises. That's a very interesting um, kind of dialing and drilling into what we were just talking about, is that, um, you know, you can say, okay, there's a red sign. That means almost nothing. Who cares (laughs) that is a red sign? But if you say it was a blood red sign or it was a sign with pockmarked with um, bullet holes or something. So suddenly now we're like, oh, it's blood red. That's kind of the mood. Or pocked, you know, with bullet holes. Oh, people around here shoot at things, you know. So those little details can actually carry quite a bit of meaning in the story. Detail so interesting to me, too, because I don't put a lot of detail in when I write. So when I do, it's, it is in there for a reason. I think uh-huh. my readers from just my first book, I only have, you know, that specific audience. But I do know that one of the things um, that I got positive feedback on, um, I don't read the negative feedback. So maybe the other people didn't like it, but that people thought it was very efficiently written or wasn't, you know, over description, which is something else that I love in certain writers, um, such as Penelope Fitzgerald and, you know, even. Even someone like a Hemingway, um, that that sense of um, I'm not going to be flowery or florid mm-hmm. with my prose. That's where I lean towards. And I think one of the reasons that detail is also so important is that for the audience to stay engaged while you're sharing the detail, whether there's a promise in it or not, I think it's important that you be describing something in a way that is 
different from the way it's normally described. Mm, and yeah. that takes a real talent. And that is something that I so admire in the people that do do it beautifully. Um, like, you know, in Edith Wharton or in F. Scott Fitzgerald, that almost, Michael Andache, that almost poetry, you know, to what they write, um, living poetry, you know, poetry emotion. And I love that. I, I find of. Oh, I've found over the years, I would say, that uh, a lot of writers that I speak with tend to either naturally be storytellers or naturally wordsmiths. Yeah. And, you know, some, some are like, oh, I really, I just can naturally tell a story, but I've got to work on choosing the right words, or other people just have, like you just said, poetry and economy of language, but maybe where they need to focus is actually, you know, telling, telling a story. Uh, with the, do you find one of those is tr- true for you at the beginning and one that you need to develop or work on or spend more time with? I love that question, and I do find that I am a storyteller. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a pantser who plots. Like, that's what I love, you know. That's why I write. I write, I don't know what I'm writing, where I'm going, and I write to find out what's going to happen. And I love a good plot. My favorite books growing up were The Count of Monte Cristo and A Tale of Two Cities. And, you know, I just, I love a rollicking story with lots of characters. And with the thing I have to work on, and it comes in revising. So the first draft for me is Heaven. It's the most fun I'm ever going to have in life. And <laughs> the, dra- the final draft is the penance for the fun. Oh, <laughs> like, you know, and, and I'm, in the, I'm, in the, I'm kind of in the middle of final edits on book two. That has been sold to St. Martin's Press. I'm so excited. It's coming out in a little over a year. I'm working with my editor. And where I think, you know, you're so fortunate if you get published and you are working with an editor and agent. Because what my editor, my agent, I think forced me to do is to find the magic in the revising of really, imbuing the detail and the symbolism and the illusions and the lyricism and the um, atmosphere, the, you know, the imagery. That, that's where they really, for me, are making me work, and I need that. And I am benefiting and getting better all the time, and it's, I think it's a process that doesn't end. Your natural starting point and then how you get to the ending. I mean, writing is, you know, it's a challenging experience to do it as well as it needs to be, I think, to stand out in the marketplace. But it's also a, a thing that you get better at over time. And that's what's exciting about it. That's, I mean, that's encouraging to hear you, you say that and really affirm you know, the importance of going through numerous drafts to finally find the, you know, the, the best maybe phrase or the one that really shines or something like that. And yeah. um, so one of the things you mentioned is pantser, plotter, and so on. <laughs> I think people who listen, uh, probably if they've listened to the shows before, kind of know what yeah. you know, a pantser is. It's, uh, it, typically, people will say, okay, I'm a plotter, I lay out my book, I outline it, I know where everything's going, or I write by the seat of my pants, um, so I don't really you know, pre-plan things, but sort of discover them as I move along. Um, and so some people will call it organic writing. That's kind of what I typically call it. Um, <laughs> Because I don't like being called a pantser. <laughs> I completely write organically. There's no outline or anything like that. But, or, or intuitive. Some people will say I'm an intuitive yeah. you know, writer. And so for, for people who are saying, what? how do you write if you don't know where you're going? Like for you, how does the story unfold as you, as you actually work on it, as you think about it? What, uh, I don't know if, if yeah. you could just touch on that, uh, you know, that process a little bit. Oh, yeah, because I'm still infinitely fascinated by my own process to myself. It's quite fascinating to me. I seem to need to know 
three things when I start to write. And I think that's one reason why I, I've written contemporary books, but I do lean towards historical fiction because one of the things that I need to know when I start to write is what time period my book is taking place in. Mm-hmm. Because I'm not going to know who my characters are until they show up, and I can talk, I'll talk about that next as well. Because I don't really have that, I do need to know the time period because it helps me kind of have a basis or a foundation for the types of people that are going to show up and what they're going to look like or be dressed as or do for a living. The other thing I seem to need to know is location or setting. I am someone that does love a good setting when I read. I love it to come alive. I love to feel like I am in that village or that city. And that's, I think, one of the reasons, again, that I've always oriented to writers like, you know, Jane Austen. And the third thing I need to know the most important thing is stakes. What is the thing everybody is fighting for or wants or is hiding from each other? So with the Jane Austen Society, all I knew when I sat down was it was going to take place around the Second World War because in real life, my book is very, very fictional, but in real life, that was when the first Jane Austen Society was set up. Hmm. I knew that I wanted it to take place in this village of Chawden. I was going through a difficult time with my husband, had some health diagnoses, and I was rereading a lot of Jane Austen. And I was loving escaping into village life. And I wanted to, after I had finished reading all the books by her and about her uh, for a year of my life, I wanted to kind of feel like I was back in Chawden, which I'd even gone to visit, and be in that village. And then with the third thing for this book, I remember thinking, I want to write about a group of people coming together to save an old British estate, because I'd been also watching a lot of TV, like Escape to the Country and Downton Abbey. And I remember my light bulb moment for this book was, was the, oh, I know what I can do. I can write about a group of people in this village coming together to save Jane Austen's house, and that's all I know when I sit down. I think very quickly I realized that there would be a lot of characters, and I wanted to have them evenly split between men and women. So the other thing I knew would be the gender of my characters and roughly some occupations. So when I sit down to write, have you seen the viral video of Muriel Spark, where they ask her, I think it's the BBC documentary crew is asking Muriel Spark. Yeah, it went viral on Twitter about a month ago. They ask her how she writes. And she's sitting at her desk, and she has her, you know, her paper out. She goes, well, first I write the title, and then I write by Muriel Spark. And then I turn the page, and I write chapter one. And then I write the first (laughs) sentence. And then I write the second sentence. And I believe that Alexander McCall Smith, um, a late number one detective agency author, who I believe is also um, a law professor in Scotland, I think he writes the same way, and I write that way, very compulsive. It's brick by brick. Mm-hmm. And what I did with this book is I let an image come to my mind of someone who was sad, which was me, lying on a stone wall. And that was me. I'd done that same thing. So I was able to emotionally channel the experience of this individual of sadness and loneliness. And then they're going to become introduced to Jane Austen in the first chapter. And they're going to fall in love with her and want to help try and save this cottage where she lived. So at the beginning of the book, I don't really know why this person is sad and lonely. And then by page two, I'm sitting there, Stephen, going, okay, like, you know, something's got to happen, kids. So I have the trope <laughs> of the stranger comes to town. And suddenly that stranger is also a little bit about me. Um, they, are, they are someone who's come from North America. And they have come to pay homage to Jane Austen and try and find this cottage where she lived. This is something people did do historically. And I remember doing that myself over the decades of my life, trying to find the gravestones of her mother and her sister, mm. etc. So I'm channeling sort of myself as my characters are coming to life. And then I just continue to write to find out why are they sad? Why is she there? And I'm following them from some part of my brain that is a creative 
and it's subconscious and it's buried. So I'm not conscious when I'm writing that I'm actually writing sometimes about experiences of my own. I actually think I am in this completely other world. And I feel, Stephen, like I'm looking through a camera and that I'm kind of following everybody. And the characters are driving the action. And when they show up, I feel like I know them. I have a friend, Bianca Murray, and she says the same thing happens to her. But when her characters show up, she feels like she's looking out through their eyes at the world. Mm, uh-huh. But for me, I'm looking down on them. And for anyone who reads my book, they'll see that almost at the beginning of every chapter because I have to introduce eight main characters by about wow, page yes. 60, right? i got to get them all in there. So I'm doing them sometimes one or two at a time. But often a character shows up and you're looking down on them on a stone wall or a lounger or a bench. And, of course, Stephen, I only figured this out like this summer after the thing had been published, so I'm not conscious <laughs> of the time I'm doing it. But then you're looking down on them, but then I, as a writer, as I'm writing that scene, I'm like, I wonder who else might be looking at them. And then that's when the other character shows up. So it is it's very intuitive, and it's very magical for me when I'm writing. And when they show up, I feel like I know everything about them, and I can see them completely and understand completely everything about them, but I can't see their facial features. Mm. Their actual expression, like the way their face looks, um, always remains a little fuzzy to me. And that's interesting because so many people in their descriptions of characters kind of go in the opposite direction where they're like, they're really like, okay, she had high cheekbones and, uh, you know, brown eyes and brown hair or whatever it is. And uh, it's funny, I I sometimes tell people, like, women in fiction always have high cheekbones, never low cheekbones. Like, you'll never see someone introduced and say, she had lovely low cheekbones. Or no cheekbones. (laughs) Or no cheekbones. And guys always have, like, a strong jaw, like his jaw, you know. And light-colored eyes. Everybody has light-colored eyes. So I have to go out of my way because it can show emotion, you know, so I have to go out of my way, make sure there's some brown-eyed gals in there. Yeah. No, that's, yeah, so, so but uh, I love how you look at them, and then other characters show up, and you begin to explore their connections and, and so on in your, in your work, and I can't remember if I've said this, you know, on the show before, but uh, one time I was teaching about organic writing up in Alaska, and when I was done, kind of really encouraging people to do sort of the same process that you do, you know, explore the story and see where it leads and so on, this lady came up and she said, I am an artist, and in my life I have painted 1,000 paintings. And before I started every one of them, I knew exactly what it would look like. And I was like, oh, she disagrees with me. Um, you know, she might be starting an argument. I was like, well, that's a lot of paintings. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what else to say. And she goes, and in every case, I was wrong. So... For her, she would start with an idea, right, yeah, you know, about yeah. whatever this painting would look like. But as the process unfolded, she realized that it was taking her in a new and novel direction. And I think, for me, at least, that's true of writing. And it's always fascinating to me to hear the process yeah. of, other, of other authors and the way that they approach it. I, I think that's important to, you know, reiterate is that everybody, I think, comes at this in different ways, mm-hmm. and the way that's best for you may not be the way that's best for the person right next to you. That is why I think that all those earlier manuscripts of mine in a drawer, people ask, you know, where are they? We don't even know where they are. Like, we've moved a couple times. Like, I have one box with some discs in there. We don't know if they're final drafts. We know nothing. I don't look at them as anything that needs to be resuscitated. Mm-hmm. I look at them as the exploration of what was going to work best for me. I figured out through writing those books what works best for me, what time it 
day is best for me to write, um, how much or how little I should know when I start, listening to advice. Um, when I did work with agents in the past, they would tell me certain things and I would do them like wrote because I thought this is the key to getting published. Mm. I guess I have to change that. But in the end, with this book, I was the most true to myself on what I wanted to write about there than I've mm. ever been. And I think that that's that build, Stephen, towards that inspiration that I mentioned at the very start as well. You know, the inspiration comes when you get insight into something and you get illuminated um, by the idea of something and it's resonating with you so powerfully. And that I don't think happens, you know, all the time. And I think that you're trying to set up the conditions to access that. And I love writing. It's the happiest, like I said, I am ever. And part of that is because I am not being my typical self, which Mm. is I'd say pretty orderly and not not rule bound, but pretty linear and mm-hmm. pretty like I'm a former lawyer, so somewhat <laughs> um, somebody who thinks that there is a meritocracy to the world. You know, you put in so much effort and you generally get back so much. And I think trying to become a writer was the first time in my life that I realized that you could really work super hard at something and it's all or nothing you know (laughs) all of silence from the industry and you're like wow there's not even like a benchmark along the way to know how you're doing that takes tremendous faith in yourself and i think that Mm -hmm. through the act of exploring the best ways for me to write i not only learned how to be a better writer but i think i also learned about myself and what i was capable of and all of that is i just think so important to helping you generally have the happiest life you can that is really encouraging and, and kind of inspirational, actually, is this idea of, you know, writing from that genuine place in yourself um, instead of trying to be like someone else or write like someone else or necessarily, I mean, advice is good, as you mentioned, you know, and it's helpful to revise and so on, but, but if we write to try and please someone else or whatever, then sometimes maybe it isn't as authentic as, you know, when we when we write from that place deep inside of us. I don't know that the reader will necessarily tell, but I think that you may not be as inspired, and I think the inspiration is what sometimes leads to distinction or um, producing something that's different Mm -hmm. from everything else. Because I always say to people, Stephen, I'm sure you've said this too, like when people, you know, ask about you know, how, what's your best advice? For me, the best advice is write the story that you most need to tell. Nice. Because that is probably the story that only you can tell and that only you can tell the best. And that, I believe, is a good stepping stone to standing out in what is admittedly a very crowded market out there. Mm-hmm. I think I... I think I put it this way once. I, I totally agree with what you just said. Like, what is it about this story that is desperate mm. to be told? Exactly. So sometimes, you know, when I'm working on something, I'll, I'll ask that question of myself and say, well, that's the core kind of this story needs to be told, and I need to be the one to tell it. So, well, one thing I'm really interested in is the connection with Jane Austen mm. that uh, from your book and from your writing and so on. For for listeners who might not be as familiar with her, tell us a little bit about what drew you to her as an author or maybe what, uh, how you first discovered your interest in her writing. 
You know, it's interesting. I discovered it very early in life when I was about nine with Pride and Prejudice, which is, I call it the gateway drug <laughs> to Jane Austen. And <laughs> she, wrote, she, she wrote six masterpieces, and she, she wrote them pretty quickly. I think what drew me, you know, as an adolescent is different from what, you know, draws me now. And I think one of the things I would say to people about Jane Austen as a writer is that she's so far ahead of us. I mean, she passed away from a mysterious illness when she was 41. Mm-hmm. But she, by, you know, by the height of her powers, which I think really manifested themselves by, I think, her maybe mid-30s, by the height of her powers, she was so far ahead of us that her writing is continuing to live on, and as a reader, you will get new things from her work as you progress through the decades. Mm. So one of the reasons she resonates for me is that I always learn not only more about myself, but more about how she does it, but I can't pin her down because she's like a Shakespearean, you know, she's up there with Shakespeare as a genius. So... I think Virginia Woolf, I quote this in my book because I think it's so important, Virginia Woolf says, you know, out of like all the great writers, Jane Austen is the hardest to pin down her genius Mm. and to figure out how she's doing it. So there's an endless, as a writer, an endless kind of rabbit hole to go into when you read her books and are examining them from a craft perspective. So, yeah, to focus on that rather than, you know, as a reader, they're just, they're so much fun. They're so witty. They're so full of human nature and irony, and they're entertaining and rollicking and 30 characters all bashing up against each other. Plots are, you know, pristine and brilliant. There's all the wonderful reader responses. But as a writer, what I find fascinating about her is how she pins down human nature so quickly. She captures a character right at the beginning of the book, within the very two, first, I guess, two lines of dialogue in Pride and Prejudice, you know right away who this couple is from the mm. way the mother has spoken and the lack of response from the husband. It's a, very, mm. it's a very recognizable dynamic. And then it just goes on, and within two pages of dialogue, very filmically, she is conveying not only their relationship, which is how poorly they relate to each other as a married couple, but also all of human nature and why some people are interested in other things. And, you know, the mother is interested in marrying off the daughters. The husband just wants to do his reading of his, you know, his papers and his books. And you're watching this dynamic in action through dialogue and not through, she doesn't describe how they look or what the yeah. room looks like. So as a writer, I find her ability to capture human character so quickly and efficiently um, such a lodestone to work towards, just really, really effective. And I think she also has this incredible, she doesn't have the humanity of like a George Eliot, who I also love. She's, I think she's sharper, um, a bit more (laughs) caustic, but she does have an ability to portray people in all their flaws and still help us as readers feel affection for them. And that is really what life is about, is accepting each other. You know, all, all, of, our, all of each other, all our good and all our bad. And I think, you know, one of the challenges of the pandemic has also been having to experience that there's many different ways to respond to situations mm-hmm. and trying to understand uh, different people's choices. Because in the end, what Jane Austen as a writer is about is showing a very big life lesson, which is, I think, being authentic, going back to what you and I were talking about as being a writer and being authentic, but also being authentic as a person and staying clear to yourself about what you really want and trying as as much as possible in the world that you're given to go after it. And so she's got a lot of inspiration also buried in these very fascinating and entertaining plots. That was a 
a great um, introduction. Like if someone was listening to that, they'd be like, I'm going to run out right now and buy the gateway drug. I Did wrote a whole book and, about it, Stephen. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. So, cool. so um, let me piggyback a little bit on what you were saying because you're saying there's a lot of depth to her work and that you've continued to learn and grow you know, over the years as you've read it and so on. What would you say are a couple of the things that she did as a storyteller that writers today can learn from? And this may be different from whatever, you know, 10 years ago you were thinking, but when you look at her work and you say, okay, writers today, our market today, what are a couple of the things? I think human nature, you really mentioned authenticity. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. She doesn't take her time. You, you might even think she's taking her time, but everything is in there for a reason. And I'll give you an example in a second, but to go back to what modern writers can learn from her, we actually, I think, have less patience as consumers of media, and that's not obviously a headline in any way. We have shorter attention spans, and I think that with the classics, we will still give them more leeway. When we sit down mm-hmm. to read Charles Dickens, knowing that this is a classic, knowing that everyone loves The Tale of Two Cities, you probably are going to give him a bit more than those initial 30 to 60 pages that the modern reader will give a book right. that they don't know anything about the writer. You don't really know for sure how accurate the blurbs are. You don't know anyone who's read it. It hasn't you know, been passed you yet. So you, you only give it so much time. But I think Jane Austen is being read you know, right now a lot during the pandemic and being reread a lot, but also a lot of people are discovering her. They're telling me that. And I think one of the reasons is because she really does kind of, you know, jump into the action, just not in a way that we're used to in our modern media, but it's, it's all in there from the start, right from the get-go. So from a pacing perspective, I think she really does appeal to the modern reader. And I think Emma is the perfect example of that because Emma is a book that is written almost, they call it the first mystery novel. Mm -hmm. There are so many things buried in there that you could read Emma every year, and every time you read it, you will find a new clue. And I think Jane Austen took about a year to work on um, the last three books. I think the first three might have been written in a shorter period of time. She tends to have written through all four seasons. She tends mm-hmm. to start and then finish about a year later. She would read parts of them out loud to family and friends to make sure that what she was writing worked. So she oh. kind of had, you know, critique partners even then yeah, a beta shirt, you know. <laughs> she, her books, I think, were meant to be read aloud. But I think she also read them, had people read them aloud or read them aloud to her family and friends while they were in progress. She wanted to see how they reacted. She was very conscious of her audience. And I think that's something else that she teaches us. In addition to grabbing human nature effectively and the pacing, she teaches us to think about your audience and what is it they really want. And gosh knows we really want that first proposal scene from Darcy to Elizabeth that kind of comes out of left field, but she's actually led up to it. And there's a few lines in Pride and Prejudice that are kind of giveaways that you might not pick up right away where you can see, oh, there's something going on with Mr. Darcy. When he proposes, we're ready for it, and we love seeing what's going to happen next. She's built it up perfectly. So she's really aware of, I think, when the reader is going to want something to happen by. And I think that's also part of her magic. That is a great um, you know, observation that you know, when readers are ready, give them, give them what they're ready for. Uh, you know, some people that I've looked at their work or critiques and so on like that, 
I'll say, well, whatever happened with this? And they say, well, I'm not going to tell the readers because I want to keep them in suspense. I'm like, you're not keeping us in suspense. You're teasing us and annoying us. Like, yeah. tell us what's going on. We're ready for the answer at this point in the book, you know. And so, so I think there's sort of today this idea that, oh, I'm going to tease them along. I'm going to, you know, um, try to keep them in suspense. I'm like, suspense is built by the promise of peril. The only way to keep us in suspense is to reveal, not conceal. And so, so sometimes, you know, the idea that, okay, readers are ready for this, and how do you, you know, give them what they want or something better, that's, you know, a key to great writing, I think. Well, Stephen, if you are someone who is an organic writer or an intuitive writer um, or a pantser like me, one right, of the right. things I think pantsing helps you do as I write, I'm always thinking, um, what do I want to have happen next? What is it I can't wait to see? What is that? And, and I'm looking at it, I think, as a reader as well as a writer because it's the first time. And so one of the wonderful things for me as a published author that is thrilling me is that my agent and my editor, they never really make me take much out. Mm-hmm. They always want me to build in and layer because, like we said at the very beginning, um, my, I think my strength is, or at least my inclination is more towards the storytelling um, than the wordsmith. But the pacing of the book and when I reveal certain things, they're always generally happy with. And I do believe that that comes from me being positively um, inclined or willing to write without a net, you know, and just kind of go for it. And then I get to experience it as a reader as well as a writer at the same time. At least it's working for me. At at least as a writer, it feels fun. (laughs) No, that's fantastic, you know, the discovery process as you write. And um, I think Robert, you know, Frost once said, I've never started a poem whose ending I knew. Yeah. Um, And so, I mean, that's... A lot of fiction writers, that's the way that they go about it. Now, one of the questions that I was thinking of is you mentioned you have eight main characters in your story. Would you say that there is one protagonist, or would you say, no, literally, they're all, you know, playing that role in in the story? Oh, I actually think it is pretty democratic. I do think there's a consciousness um, that's more predominant in the sense that there is somebody who is sort of propping the whole village, and that is the village doctor. Hmm. And he is the one that knows everybody's secrets, um, their, their past, and possibly, unfortunately, health-wise, their future. And he is looked upon as this paragon and of the society that he's imbued in, and he is looked upon as somebody who's there to help and listen. And so he tends to have that role in the book. But when I was writing him, I wasn't consciously setting out to make him more predominant. I think it was a function of his occupation. I mean, jobs. I'm a former career coach of 20 years. Jobs are very important in my book in terms of also, I think, establishing character. And I think that other than Dr. Gray and that more constant involvement with the other characters, each of my characters, at least six of them, I really pretty much give equal shrift to. Hmm. And that, is that an expression because they're short shrift? I guess you can give equal or more shrift. I have never (laughs) thought of that before. Um, but, But I do... I do enjoy a book where you do get to go into different people's perspectives and have them all kind of bump up against each other. I also enjoy books that are often you know, in just one interior mind. So as a writer, I think what I like exploring, social dynamics, conflict um, with others through uh, ethical choices, um, banding together, people coming together for a common good, 
And these are all themes and things that mm-hmm. I'm just interested in philo- philosophically. Though I think that my writing, you know, veers towards a multi-character format so that I can explore certain themes. As a reader, I read all over the board. But yeah. definitely, I think, um, and in my new book, I remember my agent. I mean, fortunately, my, my first book has been an option for film and TV, which is, you know, very exciting. But yeah. I remember my agent saying to me, you know, with the next book, you know, eight characters is a lot for Hollywood, right? You know, and I was like, that's okay. <laughs> And then you can't tell me what to do because I made I gave them nine with the next one. Aha, <laughs> uh-huh, you go. So, so I, I am still having a lot of characters in the next book that I'm working on right now as well. Now, um, w- one of the things that you just talked about a little bit was exploring those characters and the dynamics and the themes that you have in mind mm-hmm. You know, as you write. How do you connect the outward storylines to the inward lives of your characters? Oh, that's such a great question. I think that... I think for me, the the filling in or the backstory of the characters is actually the most work that I have to consciously do, where I have to think, you know, why is this person going to care or act or be a foil or be an ally? So those are things that I have to really work on. The themes, the, the sort of external themes for the characters, I have to admit, Stephen, kind of come at the end. Mm-hmm. Like when I look back on what I've written, and I can see, for example, with the Jane Austen Society, I, I knew that I would be exploring people during World War II or at the end of World War II. And I knew I wanted to show how books can help us through challenging times, because that's what I had just gone through with Jane Austen. And I knew I wanted to explore how books can also you know, connect us. But I wasn't conscious of how much grief was going to be a theme in my book. Mm. And it was only as I was writing the backstory and filling in the motivation for behavior and finishing up the story, the plot, that I was able to look back. And I actually remember at, like, at the half point I looked back and I realized that everybody was coping with loss of some kind. Mm. I had not intentionally set out to yeah. do that. So my creative subconscious mind was yet again laying a foundation for the, sort of the external themes and causes and, and uh, choices and behaviors, and I wasn't conscious of it, but it was authentic because it really was what I most wanted to explore with each of these characters, was how they were going to overcome trauma and learn to re-engage with life. But I have to admit, when I was actually in the act of writing, I was not that aware. So for me, I think building effective backstory and having clear motivation and showing growth and development in the character arcs is what leads to, in some magical, you know, alchemy way, the more <laughs> external themes. Well, before we close up, this has been a great conversation. I'm like, I just am super enjoying it, and I don't want it to come to a close because I love your insights and your articulate way of, of sharing some of these things about writing and about imagination and authenticity and all of this. And, but before we do close up, do you have any other um, thoughts for people who are maybe, you know, wanting to write or they have, uh, you know, some manuscripts in their drawer and, you, you know, they're like, well, I'll never make it or whatever. Um, any closing thoughts or advice for people who are interested in the craft? I do think it's important 
to maybe not write every day, but I think it's important to write when it's helping you, even if it's just helping you learn something about yourself, and to not look at the act of writing as a means to an end, because that's what I did for all those years. I was trying so hard to get published. I was so focused on that part of the journey. The thing I can share with readers is, even as a published debut novelist in my early 50s, I still see no guarantees ahead. You know, I still see the act of writing for me as an experience of joy and learning about myself. And I can honestly say I don't know how many more books there will be, you know, what there will be except for, you know, the book I'm working on right now. I'm, I'm hopeful, but I don't know. But I'm going to keep writing because it makes me happy. And when I, get, when I got frustrated and heartbroken when I turned 40 and I had tried so hard with these five different manuscripts, 300 agents on an Excel spreadsheet, you know, that kind of stuff. Oh, no. and, you know, yeah. and I was just like, what is going on? Why doesn't anyone care about my writing? And I got to a point where the feedback and the lack of feedback was actually more painful than the experience of writing. So I took a break for 10 years, Stephen. So yeah. I think the last thing I would share with people is take breaks if you need to. You know, walk away. Don't see it as a means to an end. Um, don't, and, you know, the word journey can be trite, but just see it as one of those, you know, elements of life that allows you to use a part of yourself that you don't always get to use. Just the way I think a lot of people are discovering hobbies right now as well during the pandemic, right? It's just exploring what turns you on and what engages you and finding ways to tap into that and not being so focused. You have to be focused on your reader, but your reader can be you. But you have to, I think, give yourself the patience to understand that there's no sort of final ending to any of this. It's, um, it's a work in progress, and you're a work in progress, and certainly your manuscripts are as well. And I have no, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with going back to something that you've written before as well and deciding mm-hmm. maybe I'll come at this with a different point of view. Like, what is it I love the most out of this manuscript? But it didn't resonate, you know, with all yeah. those agents. So that's something else to, to always kind of keep in your back pocket is that you might have had a moment of inspiration, but maybe that point in life you came at it in a way that the market wasn't ready for. Well, Natalie, thanks so much for being on, on the show and for sharing your insights. And we want our readers to, um, all of our listeners really, to check out your book, The Jane Austen Society, to check out um, maybe your new book whenever that comes out. It'll be a little while yet. But, yeah. um, but where's the best place online for people to find out information, maybe about the new book or about this one, how to order it? Uh, do you have a website or a hub that you like to direct people to? Yeah, my website's pretty comprehensive, and it's nataliejenner.com. Perfect. Good. And so, yeah, so people, please check that out. This is a great um, book for book clubs, right, as well? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's very much, it's kind of about a book club. (laughs) So So it's a perfect book club uh, selection. So if you're part of a book club, then definitely check this out. It might be just the right read for you and your friends. So I also want to thank our listeners for tuning in. For more information about our other guests and to check out our other interviews, you can search for us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, or click to thestoryblender.com. Don't forget to like us and subscribe to receive our weekly podcasts on Friday evenings. Tell your stories well, my friends, and always remember... The art of the story is all in the blend. Take care, everyone, and we'll see you next time.